The first part of the Bible reading today is Luke chapter 5, starting at verse 33, and that can be found on page 885 of the Bibles. Luke chapter 5. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins, and no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. We continue on into chapter 6. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, what, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it. He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Stephen, it would be great if you can leave Luke chapter 5 and 6 open in front of you. I wonder if anyone said this to you before. Oh, I could never be as religious as you are. You know, your, your Bible reading and your church attendance and your prayers and the way you, you do all your charity stuff. I could never be religious. I'm just not a religious type. To which you want to respond to them, don't you? You want to say, oh, I'm not religious. I just have a relationship. I have a relationship with God. Today, we're going to confront a whole bunch of misconceptions people have about God. Uh, But the primary misconception that uh, is going on back in Jesus' time and even in a time uh, like our own is that God is in some way impressed by religion. That God is like sitting in heaven today and he has his church attendance list. And he's ticking off Tim and Chloe are here today. That's great. It's going to be a good week for them. Uh, Kate's here. She'll have a great time. Maybe some business success for, for Josh. God is not impressed by our religious works, is he? We know that. And, and Jesus taught us, and these, Luke records these three confrontations with the religious leaders of, the, of his time. Because he wants us to get this big idea about God. It's up on the screen. That is that God wants a relationship with you, not religion from you. The human heart has a funny way of deceiving us into thinking that we can shortchange God. Our hearts are sort of hardwired towards ritual, towards thinking that we can just tick off some tasks and God will be pleased. We just love ritual and comfort. Take, for example, coming into church this morning. I don't know if you sit in the same seat every week, but perhaps you just roll on in and you look for that same seat. And if you've been sitting in that same seat for a few weeks and this week someone else is sitting in that seat, you think to yourself, what are you doing in my seat, buddy? This is where I come to worship God. Move back a row. We just love ritual because we find that we can get comfortable in ritual and then we know what God wants from us. We know what to do. And so we don't have to think about it. Well, we easily drift into religious ruts. We sing songs without thinking about the words, don't we? Uh, we pray prayers, but we plan our to-do list while we're praying those prayers. We can just so quickly drift into these heartless rituals. But we know that God loves us, doesn't he? And he loves us far too much to let us go on like that, to let us deceive ourselves into thinking that religion is what matters. Uh, He loves us so much that he confronts the religious part of our hearts and he wants us instead to pursue the relationship that he wants from us. And so he says, stop performing and start pursuing what really matters to me and that is pursuing the relationship that I want with you. The religion back in Jesus' day, it had drifted into a, a list of extensive do's and don'ts. Religion in Jesus' day was filled with laws and it left the observant of those laws feeling very self-righteous and accomplished. 
But everyone else who couldn't do what the laws required, well, they felt downtrodden and condemned. Well, sandwiched between all the uh, confrontations and the conflicts between Jesus and these religious rulers is a threefold parable that kind of explains what's going on in this part of Luke's account of Jesus' life. And it gets to the heart of what's going on. And God wants to say that he has rejected heartless religion and he's bringing in and pursuing relationship with his people. He's saying it's time to do away with the old empty ways and it's time to bring in the new. Have a look at this parable with me in verse 36. There is a new covenant way of relationship that's coming in Jesus. Verse 36, Jesus begins by saying, I'm not here to patch up the old. I'm not here to fix what's broken in the old way. I'm bringing something new. Verse 36, you don't ruin a new garment to patch up an old one, do you? If you do that, you'll tear up the new garment and then the cloth from the new garment won't even match the old one. Jesus is saying, don't expect me just to fix up what's broken in the old way of relating to God. It's time to do away with that old garment, that old jacket, and bring in the new. Second part of the parable, Jesus says, the, the new just simply won't fit into the old. In Jesus' day, wine was stored not in bottles, but in wineskins, in animal hides that uh, were dried and cured. So new wine still had some fermenting to do. It was going to expand within the skins. And so it required new skins to expand. But old skins were brittle, uh, fragile. And so if you poured new wine into them, what did Jesus say would happen? Verse 37. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. Jesus is saying... The religious system that you exist in, it's brittle, it's fragile, it's broken. It's time for new wine and new wine skins. And lastly, Jesus points out in this little parable that the old just isn't going to like the new. Jesus didn't expect the religious leaders and the establishment to like him because they were very powerful. They were very comfortable. They were very in control of their relationship with God. They had their ritual. Now, when Jesus speaks about old wine, don't think vintage. Just think that which you were comfortable with. So Jesus says this this to them in verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine, what you're used to, wants the new. For they say, the old is better. The old is good enough. The old works, don't change it. Jesus fully anticipated the rejection of the religious rulers of his day. Now, we know, don't we, that Luke wrote this account of Jesus' life to provide certainty, certainty for his readers in the things that they believed. One of the reasons for great doubt in in what uh, Jesus had done was that all the people you'd expected to receive him had rejected him. All the religious authorities and rulers, the faithful Jews, had rejected Jesus. So what do you make of this man? Well, Luke records these conflicts to do uh, two things. It truly exposes the religious rulers' opinions of Jesus. But at the same time, through Jesus' uh, witty comebacks and his responses, 
it reveals God's opinion of the old order. And here is God's verdict. God says, the old way is debunked. It's time to get away with the old, do away with the old wineskins and bring in new wine and new wineskins. It's time for a new work of God. At the heart of uh, the issue in this very religious society was that tendency that all humans have, and that is that we, we try to make good things that God gives us into God things. So good gifts that God has given become things that we think make us right or acceptable to God, or things that we start to worship. So we go from worshipping and serving the living God to worshipping and serving ourselves, our own comfort, our own traditions, our own tribe, our own patterns and ways of doing church become the only way to access God. Well, you end up with a tragic comedy like you've got here in Luke's account where God himself comes to visit his people and he doesn't even fit into the religion that they've created to worship him with. It's a danger for every human heart that we can drift into these ways of making good things God things, of uh, forming ritualistic religious behaviours. It's a, a risk for us all. So let's listen in and make sure we don't miss God through, these, through our misconceptions of him like all these men did in these accounts. So we're going to explore these three conflicts under three misconceptions that they, uh, they sort of come to us under. So misconception number one. Here it is. True piety looks like boring austerity. I like to dance at weddings. And uh, when I'm shaking it on the dance floor, uh, people make comments to me the likes of, oh, I didn't expect to see the minister on the dance floor. Uh, And there is, even in our society and no doubt in Jesus' day, a sense that if you want to be serious about God, then you've got to be serious about life. If you want to be in touch with God, then you need to be withdrawn from life, disconnected, you know, maybe off in a monastery. Well, what's the scene? Jesus is at a party. Jesus is partying, and if you remember from last week, the guests of this party are tax collectors and sinners, the no-gooders, the people you don't want to be around. And uh, the religious rulers of the day, the Pharisees, well, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, our disciples, you know, we're all about fasting and praying, and you and your disciples, you're spending the whole time feasting and drinking. What's going on here? Well, what's the good thing? What's the good thing in this this misconception? Well, fasting was a good gift. It was a good gift given by God to his people. It was prescribed in the Old Testament law. Uh, It was prescribed on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. Uh, Fasting was a sign of of mourning over sin. Uh, It was mourning over sin itself in your life or the consequences of sin, that is, grief and suffering and hardship. Uh, It was also a sign uh, that you were meant to be dissatisfied or or a hopeful dissatisfaction with the present state of, of life as it is. And there's already been some good fasting in Luke's account. So, do you remember Luke, uh, Anna, the prophetess, in chapter one, uh, chapter two? Uh, Anna was someone waiting for the restoration of Jerusalem, and she used to fast and pray at the temple all the time. Uh, John's disciples they were fasting because they were people who were waiting, looking forward, hoping for things to get better. 
Well, these good, this good gift of God became a God thing for the Pharisees. What God had prescribed one day a week on the Day of Atonement, the Pharisees ramped up and they made it a two-day, uh, sorry, one day a year uh, for the, by God. The Pharisees made it a two-day-a-week affair. The, the, their disciples would fast twice a week. And it wasn't just about you connecting with God or mourning your sin. It was about you being on show. So they would wear clothes that showed that they were fasting. They would put ash on their forehead. They'd scruff up their hair so that everyone could look and say, oh, they must be so close to God. Look at how somber they are. Look how withdrawn they are. They must be truly connected with the God of heaven. The funny irony is, isn't it, that the God of heaven is in their midst and here they are, so caught up in their religion and their ritual that they miss him. Jesus responds by saying, no, 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 God's here with you. And you're so caught up in your religious activity that you've missed all the fun. Throughout the Old Testament, God refers to himself as like a husband. A husband to his people who are the people Israel. Uh, There's countless references in the Old Testament to God's king, the the Messiah, the anointed chosen one, being a a bridegroom and God's people being the bride. So when Jesus claims to be a bridegroom in verse 34, well, he's actually making a claim certainly to royalty, definitely to be this Messiah-like figure. Perhaps even it amounts to a claim to being God, being divine himself. Have a look at Jesus' response, verse 34. You can't get the guests of the bridegroom to be fasting while he's with them. No, now is the time for celebration. Now's the time for rejoicing, for partying. But Jesus does warn them, verse 35, there's going to be a time when it will be right to fast. Do you know when that fast was? On the true day of atonement, the ultimate day of atonement, when the Lamb of God was sacrificed to take away the sins of all the world. When Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, that was the day to fast. He was taken away from his, his guests and they mourned and grieved. But we know in the fullness of time and through Luke's accounts that he came back, didn't he? Back from the dead, back to be with his people and actually when he, rose, when he ascended to heaven, he sent his spirit so that we can always have Jesus with us. So, what does, that, what does this mean for us as New, New Testament Christians? Well, Jesus brings joy. Jesus brings joy. Jesus is with us. The bridegroom is here. It is time to feast and celebrate. You know, as you read about Jesus in the Bible, you might notice that he had more parties than he did meetings. Jesus was on about celebrating. And so we should reflect that. We should be joyful gatherings of God's people. We should be sharing meals, sharing food with one another. Uh, We should be a people who enjoy and, and, and relish in relationship with God and relationship with one another. True piety should look like joyful relationship with God and others. Christians should be a people who feast and celebrate together. But there is still some room for fasting, isn't there? Going back to the wedding analogy, 
where are we situated in the whole wedding? What time is it? I like to think perhaps it's maybe canapes are being served at the reception. So the bridegroom's come. We know he's here. He's gone away. He's getting some photos. And he's coming back. And he will come. And the party's begun, but it's not, it's not reached its fulfillment. That is coming in the, in the time when Jesus returns and the new heavens and the new earth. So there is a time to look forward in anticipation with the hope that's coming, to be somewhat dissatisfied with life as it is in the present, to fast and keep our eyes fixed on heaven. I wonder if you've tried the discipline, the spiritual discipline of fasting. Don't do anything extraordinary this week. Don't plan to fast until next Friday. Uh, You'll probably drop down dead. Uh, Just be humble, be modest. Uh, Set aside maybe just a morning where you don't eat breakfast and you go through to lunch. And just use that time to try and focus your mind up on God when you feel hungry, when you would normally turn to food for comfort. Just think to yourself, I'll look to God for the comfort that's coming. Think about how that might help shape your mind to, to be anticipating the coming hope of Jesus' return. Well, Christians are people who both feast and fast because the bridegroom has come, but he is coming in a more full way in the age to come. Misconception number two. God's laws are for keeping, not for our good. So what's the scene in the, 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 the next uh, conflict? Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 6. It records the events on a certain Sabbath day. Jesus and his friends were walking through a grain field and uh, some of them began picking some of the sprouts of grain, rubbing it in their hands and just uh, chewing on the grain kernels just to satiate their, their hungry tummies. What's the good thing in this situation? The good thing is the Sabbath. Uh, the word Sabbath just means rest. It's a gift that was given by God, a weekly reminder of who we are as creatures living in a created world, living in a world where a creator uh, can provide for us and sustain us. Uh, the Sabbath was a weekly reminder that we need to down tools to take some time off and reflect on our relationship with God. It was a gift where God's people were to both enjoy relationship with God and enjoy relationship with others. But it had become a God thing for the rulers of, the, of Jesus' day. Uh, what, what classified as work was not so specific. And if you know anything about the religious heart, um, non-specificity doesn't sit very well with religion because you want to know what you can do and what you can't do. So what did the religious leaders of, of Jesus' day do? They had come up with 613 rules that governed what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath day. Amongst them were 39 different classifications of activities that would be prohibited as work on this day. And so when Jesus' disciples are plucking grain, that would be classified as harvesting. When they're rubbing it together in their hands, that would be classified as preparing food. Both outlawed on the Sabbath, uh, both uh, things that shouldn't be pursued. But what had happened is that these people had become so busy working to not work on the Sabbath, so busy making sure that they didn't do the things that were prohibited, that they actually forgot about the purpose of this day. 
to relax, to enjoy their God, to enjoy the people in their lives. And so, as they watched Jesus' disciples work on this day, the Pharisees asked Jesus, verse 2, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? They asked him. Jesus responds by saying, Unlawful to who? Jesus responds saying, Haven't you ever read what David and his friends did when they were hungry? Uh, David, King David had entered into the house of God in the tabernacle. He'd eaten bread that only priests were meant to eat. And Jesus' choice of this event is just so poignant because I don't know if you remember this story. Uh, it's in a time where David was anointed. He'd been chosen as God's special king. Uh, but there was a rejected king still sitting on the throne. That was King Saul. And he was trying to cling on to his power for everything he could. So he was chasing after David in order to kill him. He wanted to wipe this guy out because he was a threat to his power and his authority. We've got a situation, don't we, very similar to what Jesus and these Pharisees were facing here. Uh, Here is a rejected leadership trying to get rid of this new threat. And so the the choice of, of this moment is really poignant for what was taking place here. It suggests that Jesus is this new anointed one, this new coming king, and that the rulers are acting like Saul, nitpicking and trying to bring him down. David went into the temple and uh, went into the tabernacle. He ate the bread. He wasn't condemned by the priest. And Jesus is showing, actually, the, uh, the laws that you think are so inflexible perhaps have a bit more scope than you imagine, Pharisees. Jesus is saying that these laws are not in, as inflexible you, as you've made them out to be. And that, in fact, there's one far more important than David who broke that law to look after himself and his hungry friends. Jesus makes a huge claim when he says in verse 5, have a read with me. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man, that's his way of referring to himself, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying everything the Sabbath looked forward to, relationship with God, rest in God, God looking after you, well, that's all here in me. Jesus is claiming to be the one the Sabbath looked forward to. So Jesus brings, Jesus brings rest. Let me tell you about uh, my last two Sabbaths. Uh, I, I've had uh, some pretty mixed up Sabbaths recently. Uh, the, I guess the question before I go there is, the question we must ask is, must a Christian obey the Sabbath? Well, no. A Christian's not bound by Old Testament covenant laws, but should a Christian obey the Sabbath? Well, absolutely, yes. It's a good gift of God given to us to help us remember who we are. So my last uh, two Sabbaths have been a bit of a disaster. Uh, Two weeks ago, I tried really hard to keep my Sabbath. And I I, I don't take a Sabbath on a Sunday. I'm here very early and I stay very late. But I get given Fridays as my day off to rest. And so on Thursday night, I stayed up to an absolutely ungodly hour trying to get through everything so I could keep my Sabbath. And then I was so tired and so miserable and such a disappointment to be around Bridget and my family that day that it effectively wasn't really really a day of rest. Uh, Just this last Friday... I felt like I had so much on that I actually worked over my Sabbath. I did some jobs. Uh, 
I don't think either of those two practices was particularly wise. And I've observed a pattern. And that is that I'm not fitting the things that I need to do into my week. And so I need to reflect on God being the one who gives me rest. And I need to be confident enough that I can rest in him and that I need to say no to some more things. I can let God look after stuff and I can take time off. Uh, on my rest day, what do I do? I, I don't go to work. I don't check emails. Uh, I don't send them unless I've scheduled them because I think that you might only read them on a Friday and then I can make the computer send them to you. Uh, and I try and do activities that will be refreshing, refreshing physically, uh, refreshing, refreshing emotionally or spiritually. So I actually ride my bike in to see some friends for breakfast on a Friday morning, Christian mates. We have a great time together. Uh, I've realized that in preparing this, I've focused more on a Sabbath day being about not working than I have about its actual end goal, which is enjoying relationship with God. And so I've realized that I need to slow down a bit in my time with God on my Sabbath day. I need to actually make more space to sit with God and just enjoy time with him. So that's some of the things God's teaching me about Sabbath. And, you know, a lot of people come to me and say, oh, no, I work seven days a week. And uh, I remind them that even God takes one day off, so that's pretty impressive that they can work every day. But God has made you to rest. Uh, There is important cycles and rhythms of life, and this rhythm of a day of rest is a good thing. You're not bound to it. I'm not condemned because I worked on Friday, but it is for our good. It's not just a law for keeping. It's a law that God gave us for our good and for our benefit as his people. So make sure you have patterns of work, patterns of rest, and make sure that you are confident enough in Jesus to rest in him. Misconception number three. Misconception three is that God's people are more legalistic than loving. Uh, We love rules, people say. You love rules more than you love people. You're all fixated on what God says, and you dismiss the people who are affected as a result. So what's the scene? Uh, Naomi acted it out for us before. Man with a withered hand in the synagogue. The, The actual literal sort of word to describe his hand is completely dried up, completely uh, barren. Now, uh, this man is in the, in, the, in the synagogue, possibly placed there by the religious leaders who Luke's told us are there looking for an issue with Jesus. So again, let's ask the question, what's the good thing? The good thing is that the Sabbath was also a day where you were meant to reflect on the hope of final rest. So God's people had thought, maybe when we get in the land, that will be the final rest that we long for. Uh, But the land, the promised land was a little disappointing. And so that cast their minds even further forward to the rest of the new creation where God would restore restore everything, where God's people would go back to the sort of bliss and the the beautiful abundance of the Garden of Eden, that well-watered garden. Well, here's this man with the completely dried out hand. On the Sabbath day, the day where he would be longing for that restoration, that time where what was broken would be restored and made whole again, that promise God had made. But the thing that had been a good thing had become a God thing for, uh, been a good thing had become a God thing for the Pharisees. 
And they were completely lost sight of the future and were fixated in the present. And they were all about uh, turning from law-abiding and longing for the future to law-enforcing and focusing on the present. And Jesus watched them, verse 7, he watched them. And he looked around and he saw uh, that they had planted this man in in their midst. So he instructed the man to get up and stand in front of everyone. He knew what they were thinking, and so he told the man, get up, stand in front of everyone. Now, this is just a side misconception, but a lot of people think that Jesus was very passive. Jesus was very um, uh, just well toward everybody, um, almost submissive, uh, just loving and a a bit of a pushover. But I love this about Jesus, that he doesn't just fit into the molds that we expect him. He doesn't just come as you might want him to be. No, where he sees empty religiosity, he, he confronts it and he takes it on and challenges it. And so Jesus challenges the empty religion of these people. He has the man stand up in the midst of them all and he confronts them with a question. The question is basically, what kind of, uh, what kind of law keeping do you think it is, it is that pleases God? Verse 9, read his question. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Then he performs a miracle that points to the restoration that the Sabbath was longing for. The man stretches out his hand and this dried out hand becomes a well-watered hand, a restored hand. This image of returning back to the garden and everyone in that synagogue was meant to look at this event and say, the one that we're looking forward to on the Sabbath, the one bringing restoration, he's here. Let's rejoice. Let's celebrate. But what happens? Verse 10, uh, verse 11. The Pharisees who saw this missed the sign and instead they began plotting evil on the Sabbath. They were furious, literally filled with fury. And rather than doing good, they began plotting the evil. Rather than rejoicing in this saved life, they began plotting the destruction of Jesus, the one who was bringing in this new age. Well, Luke does two things here to show you why things need to change. Firstly, he records how the Pharisees missed the sign. And then secondly, he shows you that God is doing away with the old order and he's bringing in a new order. He's bringing in new leadership. Luke points out that in the next few verses, Jesus, during these times, took 12 of his friends aside and appointed them apostles. The number 12, you know, is significant because there were 12 tribes of Israel. So Luke is saying the old leadership is gone. Jesus is ushering in a new age with new leadership. Jesus is, is the one who is constituting this new Israel around himself. And Jesus is the one who brings the true freedom that the Sabbath longs for. Jesus sets us free from legalism. We're free to enjoy Sabbath rest days. We're free to use them to embrace restoration and the healing that they looked forward to. And so I've seen people who come here to church on a Sunday and they turn up at the door and they ask the customary, how are you? And they get a sense by the tears in the person's eyes that all's not well. And they spend all of church sitting out on the park bench or 
walking around our neighborhood, listening to that person, crying with them, praying for them. And I dare say that they have more truly come to church this day than the person who brushes aside the person in need, the person who comes in in their ritualistic fashion and sits and sings heartless songs. What does it mean to really, truly keep God's law? It means keeping the heart, the spirit behind it. It means pursuing relationship, relationship with God, rich relationship with others. You're free to not come to church if you need to pursue peace with someone. You're free to take time to do business with God rather than be here and be hiding from God. Well, we all have a propensity to fall into ruts of of rituals. And the human heart is geared towards ritual and comfort. But you know, don't you, that God loves you too much to leave you that way. He loves you too much. And so he confronts religion. He confronts it and he says, I want you to pursue relationship." So next time someone says to you, I could never be as religious as you are, what are you going to say to them? God doesn't want religion. He wants relationship. He wants relationship and Jesus is the one who brings that relationship. He brings joy, feasting and fasting. He brings, uh, he brings rest, rest for your soul. Rest for your mind, rest for your heart. Rest in the hands of the living God who loves you and will meet your needs. Jesus brings freedom, freedom to truly worship, freedom to do the things that the law and the rules pointed towards, to love God and love others well. Jesus brings all these things, but he warns you that new wine won't fit into old wineskins. This new garment won't stitch on to an old cloth. Don't think that you can just stitch Jesus on to your already existing patterns and ways of living. Don't think you can pour Jesus in to your ritualistic habits or your religion. No, let God shape you. Let God make things new. Let new wine be poured into new wineskins. Be a learner. Be a grower. Be someone who lets God challenge you, challenge your head, challenge your heart. Make sure you come to church with open eyes to see God. Let me finish by telling you about Helen. Helen uh, is the woman who led my mum to become a Christian. Helen has been a Christian for over 40 years. And uh, I learned a great question from our brother John Best here uh, uh, to ask another Christian you haven't seen in a while. And that's the question, what's God been teaching you lately? Well, I can't remember what God had been teaching Helen, but she finished with these wonderful two comments. She said, the great thing about being Christian is that I'm always growing, even as I'm growing old. And she said, the great thing about being Christian is that I'll be learning until the day I die. So friends, Jesus is bringing something new. Be a learner. Be a grower. Be ready to let him come to you the way he is, not the way you want him to be, not the way... You expect him to fit in with your life. Let him come. Let him bring joy, rest, and freedom. Let's pray that that would be the case in our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you confront our empty religion. 
that you expose our hypocrisy. Thank you that you don't call us to try harder, but rather you ask us to open up our hearts to your son, Jesus. Fill us with the joy that surrounded him and all who met him. Help us find our rest in him. And let us use our freedom to grow in love for you and love for others. In his powerful name we pray. Amen.